You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Like to, if you'd like to get one, and uh, everyone, please stand. Let's prepare for today's scripture reading with this prayer. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us and showing the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach and encourage us through your word so that we may be ready to love and serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's word is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5 verses 31 through to 37. This can be found on page 859 of your Pew Bible. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery again you have heard that it was said to our ancestors you must not break your oath but you must keep your oaths to the Lord but I tell you don't take an oath at all either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anne. Please take a seat, everybody. Leave that passage open. You should know this about me. I love fishing. Just come right out and admit it to you. I love fishing. All right? Glad I got that off my chest. Not really big on the kind of fishing that comes to mind when people talk about fishing. Either the uh, disciples kind in the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 4, throwing nets. Not big on throwing nets. Uh, except when I'm doing it with my son to catch food for his pet turtle. But uh, I'm also not that big on sitting on a pier, dangling my feet, waiting for a fish to come along. I like the kind of fishing that's more like hunting. I like walking up a river in rubber pants, walking up a river and uh, stalking fish, looking for a trout and cast into it and trying to trick it with a fly. Or a lure, I like that kind of fishing. So recently when we were up at, uh, uh, where was that place where we were? <laughs> um, at uh, that place, Taggarty. Um, <laughs> on the Akron River, um, near Lake Eildon. I, was, uh, I love going up there with our family because I get to 
um, leave the children with Renee and go fishing for the day. So um, love my kids, love my wife. Also love walking up the middle of a river trying to trick fish. All right, so I was doing that. And this time, though, I had a little mascot with me because my nephew was there and he's just been getting into fishing. They just moved to the country and uh, Sammy has, now has a dam that he can fish in. So he's getting into it. Um, and so while we we're up there, I took him to the, a really nice trout fishing shop uh, there in Alexandra and we bought him his first proper fishing rod. And as I was setting up his first proper fishing rod, I set it up correctly, which was to say, because he's a right-hander, I put the reel on the left-hand side of the reel. Not many people know this, but if you're a right-hander, you need to have that reel on the left-hand side. And uh, that's because um, it's the right way to do it. And, uh, and uh, I haven't lost my mind, by the way. Some of you are thinking, he just doesn't want to talk about divorce, so he's just talking wrong. <laughs> the reason you want to put that, that, that reel on the left-hand side if you're a right-hander is because all the most important stuff you do when you're fishing is with your right hand, you know, casting, setting a hook, fighting a fish. And so you want to have your best hand, strongest hand, to control the fishing rod and the dumb work can be done with your dumb hand, right? Reeling. Simple. Anyway, Sammy had never had a fishing rod set up like this. He'd had it like most of us, had it set up wrong. And so uh, I said, just bear with me, all right? This is the way to become a good fisherman. If you, if you are really going to, you know, I've just invested in you, Sammy. I've bought you this fishing rod and these lures. You need to do it right. I want you to be a good fisherman. So we get out on the river, on the Akron River, in the middle of it. We're casting to these trout. The fish are on. The fish are biting. And... About 10 minutes into our session, I see him walk out of the river and throw his fishing rod on the ground. And so I casually, gently went over to him and said, what's, what's the matter? And he's like, I'm not doing it this way. I'm not doing it. Your way is dumb. It all feels wrong. Right? It all feels wrong. Everything's backwards. So I caved and put it on the the wrong side for him and he got on with it and he was happier that way but it kind of struck me as a little bit of a parable of how we come to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus here as I've said over and over again he's giving us his disciples a prescription for the flourishing life okay he is God he made us he knows us. He is establishing his kingdom. He's saying in this kingdom this is how you flourish. This is the good life but to us, it, seems, it all seems backwards. It seems upside down. It's not the way that we naturally live our lives. And so it's tempting for us when we come across some of these teachings to say, I'm not doing it that way. It all feels wrong. And when we do that, just as Sammy did, we forfeit an opportunity to flourish that we would have if we persevered with Jesus who knows us better than we know ourselves. So this is obviously really important at just about, in fact, every step of the way through this sermon. We get particularly jolted on some things like the teaching on divorce. It's actually all the way through. Jesus is going to talk about greed and money, and that should absolutely jolt us just as much as this does. Because in just about every case, we are out of step with the way of the kingdom that he's prescribing for us, that he's calling us to this covenant faithfulness that he wants us to walk in. It's not just us that are jolted by Jesus' teaching. You need to remember this too. His first hearers were just as shocked by his teaching. 
it was just as kind of upside down in their context as it is in ours. In fact, later in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to look at this today, in Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce uh, in in Matthew 19, at the end of that teaching, his disciples say to him in Matthew 19.10, they were kind of like, oh my gosh, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry Like, if what you're saying is true, and we trust it is, Jesus, like, we're your disciples. We've given up everything to follow you. We're banking on you being right about these things. But if what you're saying is true, it's better just never to get married. Don't believe the myth that what Jesus said to his disciples in the first century just clicked instantly for all of them, and it's, we have trouble because we live in a different context. No, his teaching was shocking and has always been. From the moment he said it, as his words hung in the air on the mountain, to today, we're prone to have this kind of response, this sort of, there's a lot to reckon with here. In fact, in this passage, we're taking two passages together, there's a lot for us to get through. So let's just dive in. I told you a story about fishing. If you get nothing else out of today, there you go. But let's jump into what Jesus actually says. Verse 31 of chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. So again, the same pattern, each of these six teachings that he gives. Remember, he states the Old Testament uh, Torah, the law, and then he interprets it for us and gives us an application. So here, he stated the law. And this is the law that was given to the people of Israel by Moses that if you're going to divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce. You find that in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. A little more straightforward than divorce in our day. Uh, mercifully no lawyers involved here, but also prone to massive um, abuses. Now, in Jesus' day, and this is really important for us to get, in Jesus' day there was this great big controversy around marriage certificates. And you had these, these disagreements between rabbinical schools. So different groups of rabbis, different kind of approaches to the law, You had one group that was quite liberal, like quite progressive. They were up for this meaning pretty much anything. There are anything you want to be grounds for divorce. As long as you write that certificate, you're good to go. So even to the end, some scholars have recorded just the, the ridiculous list of things that you could divorce your wife for, one of which was like, she burnt my dinner. So... See how interpretation of God's word can lead to massive abuses, right? Because if I believe that, that she, my wife is indecent if she burns my toast, then I can get rid of her. Now, there was another sect of, of, of rabbis, another rabbinical school who were much more conservative. Um, and so, yeah, there was adultery and a, kind of a list of different versions of sexual immorality. I won't go into all of them. Um, and, uh, and a bunch of other things. So a kind of a, a long list, but a more conservative list. And, and that's, that's 
the argument that was being had at the time, and the Pharisees, knowing that this is a controversy, knowing that not that long ago John the Baptist got his head chopped off for, for speaking critically of the king and his sexual appetites, right, wanting to trap Jesus, wanting to test him, they ask him a question about this. And so you, you get this in, later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 19, and we'll pick it up at verse 3. Some Pharisees approached to test him, to test Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? You can take that in two ways, right? Are there any grounds for divorce? Or can he divorce her on any grounds? Probably the latter is the case. So can he just do it for whatever reason he wants? Right? She didn't take the rubbish out this week. Whatever. Now, remember, they have in mind the, the kind of scope of the disagreement of the age, which is between really liberal and, and a little less. Jesus pulls the rug out from the whole thing in his response. So in verse 4 to 6, he says, Haven't you read that he who created them, God who created them in the beginning, created them male and female? He takes them back to Genesis, back to the beginning, pre-sin, pre-fall, right back to God's original intention. And God also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In biblical marriage, one plus one equals one, okay? They become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, this is application, what God has joined together, let no one separate. His response is unequivocal. He's saying, this controversy between you two, you're both wrong. What God has joined together... Let no one separate. So he takes them back to the beginning and he kind of paints for them a picture of the whole sweep of the Bible story. The, the, the big picture of the Bible, if you want to paint it in really big, broad brushstrokes, is that God loves his people and the whole story of the Bible is God keeping his covenant with his people. Staying true to his promises. Where they are faithless, he remains faithful. He keeps pursuing them even when they are cheating on him constantly. He keeps his promises. He's faithful to them. He doesn't allow anything to separate what he has joined together. So Jesus wants to pick up this thread that precedes everything that comes after it. In the law, in the prophets, in the rabbinical schools of the day, he takes them right back to the beginning of the thread and said, this is what marriage is about. It's about covenant faithfulness, just as God is, is faithful to his people. So a man and a woman are called to be faithful to one another. In both cases, God has done the joining. It's a Bible scholar named Beth Felka Jones, this is how she sort of summarizes this neatly for us. Have I got that quote there? She says, Marriage created by God as a one flesh union is meant to be a sign of God's unbreakable covenant with us. This is an important symbol throughout the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, the same thread, right? She goes on, God is compared to a husband and God's people to a wife. When by the grace of God we're able to keep a marriage together, we get to be symbols, imperfect symbols, 
but still symbols of God's faithfulness to his people. Marriages are supposed to last because they are symbols of God's lasting love for us. This is obviously what Paul picks up on in one of the great marriage passages in in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 31 and 32, he says, Therefore, a man, quoting Jesus, quoting God at creation, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in Paul's mind, marriage itself, right? Marriage itself is a parable. It's a picture. It's a drama. It tells a story. You're meant to see a man and a woman both on their wedding day, exchanging rings, and on the day that they are put to rest where the marriage dissolves, right throughout their life together in ups and downs, they're meant to be a little picture to you of Christ and the church, God's love for his people, God's covenant-keeping love. That's what's going on. There are all kinds of practical reasons that we have marriage, all kinds of civil and legal reasons we have marriage, but ultimately, Paul says, the ultimate reason people get married is so they can tell a story, the story of God's love for his people. So the reason, Jesus says, we ought not separate what God has joined together is because what God has joined together is meant to be this emblem, this symbol of his covenant-keeping love, and God never breaks covenant with his bride. So, back to Matthew 5 then, all right? Jesus says, we'll read those two verses Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So again, he's saying that whole controversy between you guys, you're both wrong. The only grounds... For divorce, according to Jesus, is sexual immorality, probably in the context, meaning adultery. He just talked about that in the verse before. Sexual immorality, it's the, the Greek word is porneia. That's, it, it kind of is a, like a... You know how everyone's third drawer in their kitchen is just full of everything? It's kind of that kind of term. It's a third drawer term for all of the bad sexual stuff that we can get up to. Um, uh, won't go into detail again. Uh, at some point in the near future, we're going to have kids' ministry running during this time, and I'll be way more graphic then. Some of you will hate it, some of you will love it. Um, but for now, let me just say, porneia means all the dodgy stuff, okay? And, uh, but Jesus probably specifically, even though he uses the broad term, is, is talking about adultery, given that's just literally what he was saying verse before, all right? So he's saying, unless that's happened, that's the only thing that can break this covenant between husband and wife. So, by summary and by implication, if you divorce for any other reason other than adultery, you force your wife to become an adulterer, and if you marry a wife who is divorced for a reason other than adultery, 
you become an, an adulterer. Now, let me just explain that because that's a little bit confusing. We need to know the historical context. So how does me divorcing my wife because she burnt the toast or whatever or we're just not getting on or, or she's not the woman I thought she'd be or she's no longer com- completes me or whatever, if I divorce her on those grounds, how do I make her the adulterer? Simply because in the first century, if you're a woman and you're not married, then you're not eating, all right? You ha- if, if you're a woman in the first century, you have to be married in order to survive. It's just a, a, a plain fact of life. This is why the church was so concerned in the first century with, with taking care of widows, right? It was widows and orphans. Why? Because both of those classes of people are screwed. They, they're not eating. They're not, they don't have somewhere to live. So the church takes care of those powerless people. In the first century, if I'm not married and I'm a woman, I better get married quick if I'm going to eat. So Jesus says, you, the man, force her to be an adulteress because you've divorced her. Now she has to go and get married to someone else. And she's divorced on unbiblical grounds. And when you remarry after an unbiblical divorce, you are committing adultery because you're still married in God's eyes to that person you were married to before. Do you see how that works? He's actually putting the onus on the man. It, it, if you read it on the surface, it's kind of like, Jesus, you're being a bit harsh on the woman there. No, he's putting the responsibility on men. You don't force your wife to become an adulteress. I spoke to someone just this week in our street who who told us she was completely blindsided by her then-husband who just announced to her one day that they were, he was leaving. Newborn, right? And we're, and we're kind of, we're immediately trying to like just help this woman out because she's, though she is able to work in our culture and isn't, you know, starving because she's been abandoned, like the pain is still very real. So Jesus says there is to be no blindsiding here. And in his context, obviously, it's that much more weighty. It's a matter of life and death. So if you divorce your wife on unbiblical grounds, you force her to become an adulteress. And if you then marry that woman, you yourself become an adulterer. You are marrying a woman who is still married, whether or not she's been given a certificate the divorce was invalid, Jesus says. So let's just think about it. First century, Jack and Jill, they got married and now they're, just, they're not getting on. She keeps burning the toast and he's, I don't know, spending too much time at the first century TAB and they're not getting on. They, they're like, all right, this is it. He, gives, he writes her a, a divorce certificate now she goes off she has to get remarried and as she does she commits adultery jesus says and he goes off and finds someone better to marry who doesn't burn toast and he commits adultery jesus says jill forced to marry bill now makes bill an adulterer as well as herself and the whole cycle becomes very 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 messy very broken Jesus says, this is not God's intention for you. Verse 32, where he says, uh, 
uh, sorry, back in um, chapter 19 where he says, it was not so from the beginning, right? God's good intention for marriage never involved this kind of mess. Now, right now, here's what's going on. Right now, can you smell that? Right now, I I smell the putrid stench of Satan. He stinks. And Satan, present here, either himself or his demons, you know, they just they love opportunities like this in the midst of a worship gathering to seed division, to seed despair, to increase, oh, they just love it, the um, shame, guilt. They feed on that stuff. They get off on that stuff. Satan loves divorce. The book of Malachi, it says, God hates divorce. Satan loves it. He loves it. And he loves to rub our noses in mess. So let me just say this now to those of you, some of you who are here this morning who are divorced, some who have been abandoned. This is a wonderful, glorious opportunity for the triumph of, of God's grace to be on display. Remember last week I said Jesus is full of grace and truth. So he's just spoken some truth to us, unalloyed, unburnished truth. But you also need to know that he is full of grace, amazing, abundant grace. It might come as news to some of us who have come from particular church backgrounds, but divorce on any grounds is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. Jesus delights to embrace people who have experienced deep brokenness in marriage relationships. Loves it. Runs to those people even the ones who caused the problem to begin with, even the adulterer, the abuser. Jesus didn't die on the cross for acceptable sins. You know those acceptable sins of greed, gluttony? Jesus died for all sin, and he abundantly forgives all who come to him, humbly repent, throw themselves on his mercy. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? So to hell with Satan. Hey, I'm even just going to pray now. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your victory over Satan, sin and death through your son on the cross and his resurrection to new life. Jesus, you are seated on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things. So I pray now that you would banish from our midst the evil one, his servants, their works, their effects, that you would also cleanse us of our sin, 
past, present and future. And that no matter where we are on the continuum of sinfulness, that we would run to you and receive your grace, pure white robes washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. So, full of grace, full of truth. Let's be open to both. And really, really quick now, at hyperspeed, because this is such a prevalent issue. And because I think all of us would admit our, the world that we live in and work in and walk in is so out of step with this kingdom that Jesus is outlining for us. I just, I, I just want to hit like three drivers of divorce in our culture today and just reference them quite quickly, all right? So the first one I want to reference is disappointment. This is weird to me because in a culture that has such a low view of marriage, very often the people getting married have a very high expectation of one another. So low view of marriage, disposable, divorce on demand, but when we come to be married, very high expectations of our spouse. Now, obviously, this is all the fault of Jerry Maguire, okay? And, you know, it's, most things are Tom Cruise's fault, but he is sort of representative of just the Hollywood in general, the idea that this person that I'm deeply in love with completes me is utter nonsense, all right? Just disavow yourself of that notion completely. I don't care if you've got the best husband in the world, you know, he cleans after himself and doesn't ever burp and knows how to make a cup of tea. Like, he does not complete you, nor can he ever complete you. If we have any sense that this person that I'm giving my life to will complete me, we are putting on them a, a burden that they will never be able to bear. Remember this. This is one of our catchphrases. Whatever we idolize, we will demonize. All right? I start out thinking this woman is just everything and she's, she completes me and I had her at hello. And, and, and then very quickly she moves from idol to demon. Why? Because she is not God. She does not and cannot complete me. The best thing some of us could do, and I've said this in some marriage counseling, the best thing some of us could do is just lower our expectations of one another. You are both sinners, right? You've just, gone, you've just doubled your sin count by becoming one flesh. You've concentrated sin, all right? Some of us are so deeply disappointed that this person isn't fulfilling all of my Disney princess dreams that we, can, we are only left with contempt for that person. Discontentment, resentment. You're not the person I thought I was marrying. Yeah, that's because you were marrying a fantasy. I tell you what, and I'll just share this and... Uh, both of these stories happened at my last church. So if this gets back to them, maybe I'll get in trouble. But just keep this between us. This isn't being recorded and going out on the internet, is it? Um, I had one couple very newly married 
in their first year. And she, the wife came to me and said she was rethinking the whole thing because he, he, at the dinner table, he was burping and farting and he would not pick up his clothes off the floor. I was like, sweetheart, what did you think you were doing? Who did you think you were marrying? He is a man. Like, adjust your expectations. So then I can say to the guy, you know, can you just hold it in? Pick up your clothes. It's not that hard. Like, make some new habits. But in the meantime, and even if he keeps doing it to this dying burp, like, what were you expecting? There's a great book, actually, by, is it Paul David Tripp, called What Were You Expecting? Which is a book about marriage, which I highly recommend trying to disavow us of these fantasies. I had another guy, spoke to another guy who was thinking about getting, uh, separating from his wife, but it was because of this, right? He was infatuated with his co-worker, this woman at work, who was younger than his wife, yes, but also, crucially, was his subordinate. So he was just in love with her because he did everything that he told her to do. She like laughed at his jokes. She like congratulated him when he did something well. I was like, this is a classic move, by the way. The, the man that runs away with his secretary or, you know, the barmaid or someone who's like literally paid to laugh at his jokes and bring him stuff. It's classic. Why? Because, oh, my wife doesn't get me drinks. My wife doesn't photocopy stuff for me. Like, she doesn't congratulate me. Completely blind to the massive power imbalance and the fact that she's paid to be the wife that you want to be, that you want to have. And so, here, look, listen, this is why the, the divorce rate for first-time marriages, I think, is about 30%. For second-time marriages, it's about 60 Because you get these guys who are always looking for the woman who's finally going to fulfill all their fantasies or you know the woman and they find out actually no that's never going to happen even if you get the upgrade it'll still disappoint you disappointment is a driver right it's a it's a driver towards divorce so is difficulty all right these are all d's pause for applause Okay. <laughs> and divorce is a D. That's four Ds. All right, so disappointment, difficulty. Again, we come into marriages thinking, like, just not really paying much attention to the inevitable difficulty that will strike you, like, probably on the wedding night, to be honest, particularly if you've been a, someone who hasn't had sex before your marriage, all right? That's probably going to be your first difficulty. Uh, on the very night, okay? But if not, somewhere down the line, it's going to get really hard, right? It's going to get really treacherous. It's going to get really difficult. Why? Because you're married to a sinful person. You live in a sinful world. I think part of the problem, and I'm doing some preparation for a wedding at the moment for Evan and Christine used to come here now living in far north Queensland and I I keep asking them are you spending as much time on the marriage as you are on the wedding because some of us get sucked into so much into making this party the best day of our lives and then we get to the next day of the rest of our lives 
what do we do now? Right? So preparing for the inevitable disappointment and difficulty. I mean, I, people must hate me during mar- marriage preparation because they come in all loving each other and he's getting the door for her and she's like, got, looks really pretty and uh, they've both been working out furiously in, in anticipation for their marriage day, their wedding day, and I'm just in there just trying to point out everything that will ever go wrong. So I, I will say to a couple, listen, we're going to work through the, va- the marriage vows step by step and you are going to learn them off by heart, not just so you can say them nicely on the day, but so that you know what you are signing up for. And so I'll say, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond to one another if you can never have children? How are you going to respond to each other if you never have any money? Neither of you ever makes much money. You're always close find close to the wind. What are you going to do if one of you is sick all the time? Just bad health or congenital problems or chronic ill health. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when life gets difficult? Because as sure as night follows day, it will be difficult. My mind always goes to this story of a theologian, very famous world-class theologian in the 19th century, 19th, earliest 20th century, who, B.B. Uh, Warfield, and he was a quite well-known Princeton theologian, worked at Princeton for something like 35 years, she helped shape some of my theology when I was at college. What, something that most people don't know about B.B. Warfield is that when he was 25, he married Uh, a girl named Annie, and they went to Germany for a honeymoon, and on their honeymoon, she got struck by lightning and made a paraplegic. On their honeymoon. And so, she lived for another 39 years, and for the next 39 years, he just, like, attended to her. For everything she needed. Their entire, I mean, some of us think this is probably going to happen in the last few years of our marriage before one of us dies. This was from 25, right? Young love, all the way through to the end. It's said that for those nearly 40 years, he never left the house for more than two hours. For 40 years. Why? Because he said to her, I'm going to honour you and honour our covenant in sickness and in health. Right? That's kind of what the vows are about. They anticipate difficulty. So I just sent the vows for the service up to Evan and Christine, and I told them, go through these things. Go through them over and again. And when we do the rehearsal in June, July, when I'm up there, when we do the rehearsal, I'm going to get you to say this to each other. Because even then, the night before, you can pull out of this. I think I've written out. Let's, let's just go through them. This is what he's going to say. I, Evan, in the presence of God, take you, Christine, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. What is it? This is my solemn vow and promise.
So yes, even in the best of marriages, disappointment guaranteed. Difficulty guaranteed. Neither of those two things is grounds for divorce. When I sit down with married couples who are struggling, and let's just, let's just pull the curtain back, just about everyone in our church is in a struggling marriage right now. If you weren't before COVID, you are now. Throughout COVID, there was a massive spike in divorce or at least marriage difficulties. I don't know anyone in our church who has like a dream marriage. When I sit down with people who are having trouble, one of the first things I often say is, let's just make this a lot easier on ourselves. Let's take divorce off the table. Let's just take it out of our list of options. And now we can get down to business of talking about how to fix what's broken. So, disappointment, difficulty, yes. Third one is destruction. This is what Jesus is referring to. The destruction of a marriage that happens where there is adultery. Now, there is nowhere in Scripture that that advises you or exhorts you or commands you to get divorced if someone is unfaithful. The history of Israel and God is a history of unfaithful Israel and God keeping covenant and keeping wooing her back, right? And I know of marriages that where there has been adultery and there has been repentance and reconciliation by God's grace. But Jesus says this is an acceptable grounds for divorce. The tragic, catastrophic instance of adultery. Cheating on your husband, cheating on your wife. Let's just be under no illusions. This is absolutely rife in our culture today and almost permissible. I was reading an article written by a woman recently who um, is actually written a long time ago, so, but still applies. She was part of a group of women, young women, whose children had just started going off to school. And so her and 11 others, the 12 of them would get together while the kids were in school and they were learning French. And at one point, the leader of the little group said, just by the by to the women there, um, hands up if you've stayed faithful to your marriage vows. Like, have you hands up who have not committed adultery, essentially. And one person put their hand up out of the 12. The woman goes home to her husband and says, this is what happened, only one person put their hand up and it wasn't me. And he's like devastated. And she's like, no, 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 I haven't cheated on you, but I was embarrassed to be one of the only ones who hasn't cheated on their husband. Is that just, like, which, which version of the world is upside down now? <laughs> So yes, this is happening all of the time. Adultery is being committed all of the time. And Jesus says it is devastating. It is so catastrophic that it is grounds for divorce and remarriage. Now, I want to say, and I can't get into the weeds on this because I'm nearly out of time anyway, but listen, there is a whole subcategory of stuff. If you have adultery as the explicit example that Jesus gives, there's a whole subcategory that I want to talk to um, 
people who are in difficult situations, I want to talk about grounds for separation for the purpose of reconciliation. I'm like about as conservative as you can be on divorce, like Jesus is, but I'm pretty open to separation for reconciliation, like a constructive separation. You guys need to live separately for a period of time, and during that time, the hardest thing you're going to work on is reconciling with one another. This could be, I mean, the obvious case for this, and it needs to happen immediately, is where there is any kind of violence. If anyone is physically unsafe in the marriage, we're we're getting you out of that marriage. God willing, not permanently. But we're getting you out of danger. I mean, and it's not just violence. I mean, it, it can be, I don't know, Abuse in general, emotional, verbal abuse, inappropriate relationships, the, the secretary thing, right? These are instances where we need to talk about just separating you for a time. Listen, I can see I'm losing you, but let me just say this, no sermon can speak to the complexities of this issue and every single instance of divorce, remarriage, separation, abuse, all of these things need to have really, really good, thorough counsel right at the heart of all of it. You need to have other people speaking in, trusted friend, a trusted parent, a trusted pastor, a trusted counsellor, someone who can be in the middle of this with you. This is something that needs to be worked out. There is no you know, like cookie cutter, like I'm just going to stamp this and it applies for everyone, okay? Hmm. The last three weeks, I've kept pushing parts of the passage back to the next week and I just can't do it much longer because in two weeks, we've got our guest speaker, Chad, coming back and uh, I love Chad and I want to saddle him with an extra passage. So we have to, we have to, we have to get, can you, can you stick with me for a, a little bit longer? All right, we'll get to the whole promise-keeping thing, which is obviously related to what we've just been talking about and it's no coincidence that Jesus moves on to saying what you mean when you say what you mean. All right, so let's do it really quick. I'm going to motor, all right? Matthew 5 and 33. By the way, if you've got any questions about anything from today, please, please speak to me. Probably isn't going to work too well today uh, in the midst of everyone else moving around and wanting coffee, and, but just catch up. I've got heaps of time to catch up with you guys or make a call. Just please... Please, I'd love to. Um, or if you want me to come to your small group and talk more about this, I'd love to do that. All right. Okay, here we go. You ready? Oh, you guys, you're so encouraging. All right, verse 33. Again, he says, You have heard it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. All right, Old Testament, Torah, quote, um, the CSB version that we use helpfully puts in bold type any Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. So that's why you keep seeing the bold text. That's not me. That's, that's, that's just their, their translation does it. Okay, so let me quickly just reference the Old Testament Torah here. So you first from the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 19, do not swear falsely by my name. 
profaning the name of the Lord, uh, of, of your God, I am the Lord. This is the uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain thing. All right, so first commandment, number, and then Numbers 30 elaborates on this. Um, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. So I, I swear to God I'm going to finish this sermon in five minutes, right? Now, I'm obligated, big time, like serious. I know we throw that around like it means nothing. Some of us do. But it wasn't nothing, particularly to the Israelites. And then Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it because he will require it of you and it will be counted against you as sin. Okay, so there's the clear commandments of the Torah. If you're going to swear, swear to God, then you better do it. You better do what you mean. Now, here's where the context is so important. We don't get what Jesus is saying unless we know the context. In Jesus' day, people were swearing constantly. And I don't mean the F-bomb. They were just swearing oaths, just in everyday conversations. This was normal in Hebrew culture in the first century, you just swear by, you know. And, and, and if you spend any time in the kind of, um, oh no, I won't talk about that, I don't have time. It's funny, but I will leave it aside. Look at that self-discipline. All right, so, swear, just swear, I swear. And, and what they would do, they would actually, they had made the swearing thing a way of not keeping promises. This is what humanity always does. We just take what God puts in place and we twist it. So they had made it so, so long as I swear, but not by God, but by something holy, then I don't have to keep my promise. If I say swear to God, swear to Yahweh, then I'll have to keep it. So if I swear by, I don't know, by the temple, well, that's a holy thing, so it sounds heavy, but if I don't keep it, God doesn't care because it's like a loophole. It's like a kid who puts their finger behind their back, crosses their fingers, right? Yeah, I promise, Mum, I'll clean my room. Ha ha ha, sucker. Right? That's what they were doing. And Jesus actually addresses this in, in Matthew 23 when he's in that list of woes where he's just hammering the Pharisees. He's like, Woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools. Which is greater, the gold of the temple or the sanctified gold? It's just, he's saying it's nonsense. You're splitting hairs just so that you can cheat people, lie to people. So now, with that context in mind, this makes sense, right? He's like, don't do that. Don't mess around. Don't play games. This is not about semantics. I swear by the stage, but I won't swear by the lectern. This is not a prohibition on all contracts and all vows. Clearly, from... The vows that I just told Evan and Christine to learn. Some sects of the church have seen this in absolute terms. And you get this in the kind of eastern part of the United States, the Mennonites and um, Quakers who just refuse to sign any contracts or be part of any, like, any vow keeping or making. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not talking about official documentation, legal contracts. He's talking about everyday language. Like, just in the everyday, casual, talking to one another, don't swear by God. Don't swear by anything, he says. Verse 37. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. 
You start swearing by stuff. It doesn't matter what you pick. God is behind that thing. You swear by the olive tree. Well, God made that olive tree. So you can't get out of swearing by God. Just don't do it in the first place. When you say to someone, I'm going to finish the sermon in five minutes, then do it. You know how great our world would be if people just let their yes be yes and their no, no. Very often we lie to people because we're afraid that they'll reject us or we want them to like us or we don't want to disappoint them or whatever instead of just being like Jesus, full of grace and truth. I love you and I'm not going to do that. That's what you should say to half the things we ask you to do at church probably. I love you but I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'm serving in all these other areas, right? Okay, so... The, the, the application on this one is straightforward. And it brings us full circle, right? Brings us full circle because this whole sermon is a call to covenant-keeping faithfulness. This is a call to all of Jesus' disciples. Renew your covenant with God. When you say that you're a follower of Jesus... Let your yes be yes. Even when it feels like he's turning the world upside down. Even when what he says is incredibly difficult. When it comes to your promises made at marriage, let your yes be yes. When it comes to simple speech between brothers and sisters, between indeed between anyone, just let your yes be yes. His brother James picks up on this in chapter 5 where he says exactly the same thing. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything else is evil. Anything else is sin. Don't fall into that. Well, I said I'd finish in five minutes and God be praised. It's by God's grace that we're able to do any of these things that he's calling us to. So I'm going to ask for his blessing on us as we seek to follow him as his disciples. If during our song that we're about to sing, you want to pray with someone about any of this stuff, in any of the teaching that Jesus has given us, then just come over here. We'll pray for you. We'd love to do that. So let us pray. Father, we do once again... And even after hearing Jesus' words, we do thank you for your words to us. We do not know everything. We don't even know what's best for us. And we constantly fail to live the good life, a flourishing life. So once again, we come before you as those who are poor in spirit, and we ask, Lord, please be gracious to us. Forgive us for where we've wandered from your way. Be gracious to us and enable us to follow our Lord Jesus even through difficulty and disappointment. Please fill us with such a measure of faithfulness that we would be like you who always keeps his promises. And may from this day forward, may our yes be yes and our no, no. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.